adoption, witchcraft, and manifesting with your mind. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike. This is a weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, the Science Mike of the title, a passionate science lover and science educator who's here to give you an emotionally aware, emotionally focused understanding of science from an evidence-based perspective. So in this show, we both honor feelings and we we, we cite our sources, and we don't share pseudoscience or fall into the trap of woo. So this is a space where uh, we explore questions that can't be answered alongside those that can, and we enjoy the process, and we have a good time together. There's a great chance that you are new to this program because, wow, have we seen an explosion in uh, downloads and subscribers this week, probably due to my uh, back-to-back episodes on COVID-19. So if you're only familiar with the show from those COVID-19 programs, uh, they are a great example of my approach to science education. But a normal episode of this program is question and response driven, where I take questions from the audience that are submitted on asksciencemike.com, and then I respond to them. I, uh, I, you know, I... I'm pretty good at answering science questions. I study a lot of science, and I can do a lot of them off the top of my head. But on the program, I go through and fact-check and research and offer additional resources alongside every question. Uh, And so we're back to that format this week. Uh, But I do have a couple of things just before we get started I want you to know about uh, that I'm really excited about. First of all, we are getting to new life circumstances. I'm in Los Angeles, and we are... Under a shelter-in-place order, we can only leave our homes for grocery shopping and pharmacy and doctor's visits, stuff like that. Uh, Everything is shut down. All businesses are closed. And because of that, friends, listen to me. I know this is a scary time. So uh, I am restructuring my work around our collective needs right now. And I think, one, we need reliable information that doesn't terrify us. And we need an emotionally aware and emotionally focused uh, approach in our communication. And we need the ability to not feel isolated at a time when many of us are stuck in our homes. And frankly, I believe in the coming couple of weeks, uh, the kind of orders you're seeing in California and New York are just going to spread across the whole country alongside COVID-19. And that's that seems scary and that seems frightening. So here's what I'm doing. I am putting more on social media than I ever have. So every evening I get on Facebook Live and Instagram and we have a check-in party where we get present and we uh, take some time to step away from anxiety and we just connect with each other and have a good time using techniques that are grounded in neuroscience and in good uh, cutting-edge psychology. Uh, So I'll be doing that most evenings for the foreseeable future Unless I'm tired or something. I'm going to take care of myself, too. Uh, But I'm doing that. They've been very popular. Uh, I'm launching a number of um, video programs, weekly programs, on 
uh, Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. Uh, you, you, I guess I'll put links to those in the show notes this week. If you want to follow me on those platforms, I'm doing, um, let's see, Encouragement Mondays and Autism Fridays. And uh, I've got a whole calendar of programming that'll be coming uh, like three times a week in Science Wednesdays. Uh, so those will be video programs, and then I'll be doing more social media posting along with those daily check-in parties. Uh, so we have more time to spend time together, I think, than, than we've ever had in the history of my life and work. And uh, in, in that, I'm going to be sharing um, non-anxious presentations about the most recent developments in COVID-19 on social media. Uh, based on the production flow of this podcast, Ask Science Mike, I record it. And then it gets released a few days later, even a few weeks later. Uh, this isn't a good format for me to keep you up to date on COVID-19. So I'll continue to drop special episodes when there are major uh, revelations about COVID-19 and major public responses that are required. And um, you feel free to send me your COVID-19 questions and I can put those in the show. But I kind of want this space uh, to be a place where... We're not just talking about the pandemic, where we're continuing to live our lives, where we're continuing to be curious about the world and growing together. Um, so I just want to let you know there's a lot of new options for that with everything I'm making on social media. Uh, really exciting. Um, I still have events coming. Uh, they're just not going to be in person. Uh, April 25th, the First Christian Church in Tyler, Texas has an open faith table gathering. Um my team's in communication with them to see how that's going to be redone uh, or rescheduled. So uh, kind of hold that one loosely. And then I'm still doing a book tour. Uh, April 27th, Atlanta headed your way. April 28th, Nashville coming to see you. April 29th, Minneapolis coming to see you. April 30th, Seattle. I know y'all could use some encouragement. May 1st will be Portland. And May 8th will be Los Angeles, California. And you would say, well, gosh, Mike, how on earth are you traveling the country with these restrictions in place? And I'm not. We're going to put on some amazing virtual online book events that is going to allow you to interact with me in person in, a, in an intimate setting. It's going to let you connect with people who are in your city. That's why we're doing these events city by city. And you're still going to get a personalized signed copy of my brand new book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, that comes out April 28th which, by the way, you can pre-order that book by going to AskScienceMike.com slash new book. So keep buying tickets for those events. We want our, our independent bookstores to survive and thrive. And uh, you can be a part of that by buying a ticket to these events and spend some time with me and get a personalized signed copy of the book. We are planning together ways of living and being alongside a pandemic that's going to be with us for a while. Um. I just want you to know, my friends, I'm here for you, and I'm having such, such a good time getting to know you as we're doing more things on social media together. And uh, don't forget, if you have questions for this program, you just go to AskScienceMike.com. You can email me a question. You can record a voicemail and hear your own voice on the program. Lots of people do that. It's a great experience. Uh, so without further ado, what do you say? Let's answer some questions. Hey, Mike. My name is Calvin. I was put up for adoption when I was born. That has caused a lifetime of various abandonment issues in my life. Adoption is tough because it leads to some complex scenarios. 
one scenario where I feel abandoned by my biological family, and one scenario where I feel embraced by my adoptive family. The abandonment issue really hinders my ability to feel loved by people who profess their love to me. Can you talk about the science behind infant trauma in adoption and coping mechanisms for dealing with acceptance of love? Thanks for all you do. Well, Calvin, first, I just want to thank you for your question and for the wisdom that you're showing and asking it, that you're connecting things that you do and feel now to an early period of childhood. You know, some people, they don't even get to that level of insight about their behaviors. And I hope that you feel reassured and confident that the fact that you're aware that trauma in the past plays a role in how you behave in the present makes you realize that you're already on a path of growth and healing. And I'm so happy for you. Um, Even as you face something that's really challenging. When you talk about infant trauma and current relationships, one model in the sciences really jumps out at me immediately. It's actually something I talk about in chapter seven of my new book. Um, The new book is, of course, as you heard seconds ago, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. And chapter seven is called A Box Full of Mousetraps. And it's about why relationships, uh, romantic relationships, relationships with friends, all relationships in life can be so difficult. And one of the things that makes relationships and living difficult is trauma. Because when we have traumatic experiences, it gets encoded into our brains. And the stimuli, what happened that made our bodies think we were an imminent survival risk, uh, creates triggers, neurological triggers, that when certain neural pathways are accessed, we have a traumatic response because our body is trying to protect us from something dangerous. It acts like a backseat driver in every moment of our lives when we have trauma. And to the kind of what you implied in your question, infants can absolutely be traumatized. So we can have things that happen to us in life before we have any memory of uh, that are traumatic and give us triggers. And that lays the foundation for... um, a school of psychology that was born out of the work of someone named John Bowlby in the 1960s who studied babies. Now, I want to be clear, this was science in the 60s, so he was studying mostly white babies, mostly male babies, uh, as was common in that time. Um, but over time, these initial observations by John Bowlby have been expanded by other psychologists and have become much more inclusive and much more broadly applicable. Uh, And as the attachment theory, as it's called, was refined, here's what we learned. It's that people learn their fundamental orientation to relationships in the very earliest years of life. We start with a pre-attachment stage. That's from the time of our birth until we're about six weeks old. And during that period, babies don't show any particular preference for one caregiver or another. They just cry when they want something or they need something, and then when that need is met, they settle down. And then from about six weeks to seven months, they enter something called the indiscriminate attachment stage. And babies in that age will still respond to anyone's care, but they start to respond more strongly uh, and more readily to one primary caregiver. And that's why uh, babies at this age start to fuss when someone other than their primary caregiver, which is usually their mother, is taking care of them. And then... After the indiscriminate attachment stage is the discriminate attachment stage, which begins around seven months. And uh, 
This is when babies begin to have a strong preference for one particular caregiver, and they get afraid or angry when they're separated from this person, which is the birth of anxiety generally for the first time in a child's life. Uh, And then after that, beginning around 10 months, uh, is the multiple attachment stage, and this is when babies learn they can attach to different caregivers and even have different attachment styles with each of their caregivers. And this is something that carries on into life for us, where we might have one attachment style with the people, the person we feel closest to, and a different attachment style for people who are close to us, but not the closest person. And then even another attachment style for friends and acquaintances, or less close friends and acquaintances, uh, thanks to the sophistication of our brain. So those are stages in attachment. And what I want you to realize there is all of this gets encoded into your brain in the first year of your life. And depending on the behavior of your caregivers in the first year of your life, it indicates what attachment style that you will have. And there are several. Uh, The first and most common is called secure attachment. Uh, When people have secure attachment style, it means at least one of their caregivers was really consistent and supportive in their care for you as a child. Uh, The people with secure attachment, they tend to be really confident in relationships and self-assured. They feel ready and easy asking for support when they need it, and it's also easy for them to offer support to other people. Um, And that just requires what? Consistent and supportive actions by your caregiver in the first year of life. Another attachment style is called anxious attachment. And this is uh, people who had parents who were supportive sometimes, but weren't consistent. So maybe a baby cries and they sit the baby down and walk away and don't respond. Uh, That can be something that drives an anxious attachment style. And people with an anxious attachment style tend to be desperate to make a lasting bond with other people, especially one person in particular. And this, this need is so intense that it makes them behave in ways that can ultimately drive people away. People with an anxious attachment style can be clingy or jealous or demanding when they feel insecure. They might even test relationships by creating conflict to see if people will abandon them or not. Often people with anxious attachment styles are looking for another person to complete them. So we have secure attachment and then anxious attachment. Those are really different relationship strategies that again come down to how our caregivers responded to us in our first year of life. Then there's two more attachment styles, which are both avoidant types. And avoidant types uh, get shaped into our brains by caregivers who responded with withdrawal or anger or punitive actions and measures and reactions when infants express their needs. And there's a couple ways this goes. There's dismissive avoidant attachment. And people with a dismissive avoidant attachment style, they look like they don't need other people at all. Of course, that's an illusion. All people need people. We are social animals. But if you have a caregiver that uh, conditioned into you a dismissive avoidant attachment style, you've learned to avoid showing your needs and your feelings because that's how you got safety and security. And as adults, people with a dismissive avoidant attachment style tend to launch preemptive strikes against being rejected by hiding their need for connection with the people that they love. They often appear aloof or detached. They 
tend to avoid relying or depending on other people. And in times of conflict, the folks with dismissive avoidant personalities, or excuse me, not personalities, dismissive avoidant attachment types, have the ability to completely shut down their emotions and respond in a cold indifference when a relationship seems to be on the verge of irreparable harm. The final type and the other avoidant type is fearful avoidant attachment types. These people want to be loved. They desire to be close to people, but they have fear and anxiety of being close enough uh, to other people to be loved, right? Because that is a risk. They could be hurt. So people with this attachment style tend to have unpredictable and explosive emotional displays in their significant relationships. They're always either pushing someone away or pulling them closer, trying to find that comfortable distance that for them does not exist. You cannot be close enough to someone like this for them to be satisfied, but if you're too close and that you can hurt them, then you are frightening. Uh, it is overwhelming. And relationships with people who are fearful avoidant types are roller coaster rides that often seem wonderful and, and almost like a romantic movie and other times really crushing and terrifying. These people, uh, they lean on their partners for safety, but they feel trapped once they're close enough to feel safe. And, and something that feels tragic for me. What all four attachment types share in common is they didn't they didn't do anything to create their attachment style. Their caregivers created their attachment style. So for you, Calvin, as a person who was adopted, early in your life, I don't know what age you were adopted. I couldn't speak to that. But if you if you think back to those timelines of the attachment stages, which were pre-attachment, indiscriminate attachment, discriminate attachment, and multiple attachment, depending on what age you were adopted, a lot could have happened to you from your biological parents or whoever uh, was in custody of you in the period between your biological parents and your adoptive parents. And that shaped your attachment style. What you described to me in your question, I heard attachment work at play, attachment styles at play. In society, researchers have found that about 60% of people are secure types. Another 20% are anxious, and then the remaining 20% are one of the two avoidant types. And what's pretty remarkable, or actually not remarkable at all if I think about it, is obviously relationships between people with secure attachment styles tend to be the most successful if we define success as a relationship where people both feel satisfied and safe. But what surprises me is that secure types don't mix well with avoidant types and that anxious types tend to do better with other anxious types than the data secure types. Something about someone with a secure attachment style actually provokes the insecurities of the other attachment types. And of course, as I said earlier, we add complexity in here in the fact that at different levels of relationship, we can display different attachment styles. So you, you're, if you're in the multiple attachment stage, as all adults are, you can have different attachment styles for different contexts. Now, here's what I want to tell you based on the psychology at play here. Your attachment style is not a death sentence. It's not the way you will relate to people until you die. It's just about the kind of relational wiring in your brain that was set up when you were a baby. Um, you didn't do anything to create your attachment style, but knowing what your attachment style is 
can help you understand maladaptive or difficult behaviors that you display in relationships. And when you do attachment work, usually in conjunction with a trained specialist, people of any attachment style can move towards secure attachment style or a variant of it called earned secure attachment style. So that's the science behind babies and relationships and brains uh, as encapsulated and understood by the attachment theory, um, which I knew about for a long time, but really got a deeper understanding under the instruction and guidance of my good friend, Dr. Hillary McBride. And um, your attachment style is there in every relationship you have, Calvin. It's there in every moment you're with other people. Uh, your brain's earliest experiences of trying to relate to people and the way caregivers responded shows up moment by moment. So I hope I've given you some information here that's helpful. But if there's anything I've learned about life, it's that information is not enough. So first of all, uh, Calvin, um, if you'll reach out uh, to me via AskScienceMike.com, we've got your email address already, I think. Um, and let me know uh, what your address is. I'm going to ship you a free copy of my new book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, so that you can dig deeper in information. But more than that, I want you to see how a growth in a situation like this can't be solved by information but has to be solved by some transformation that involves a pretty deep and significant uh, emotional work, uh, generally in conjunction with a therapist. And uh, I'd just love to give you a roadmap for what that looks like because, Calvin, you can absolutely have an earned attachment style. Hi, Mike. Really love your work. My question is this. Is there any scientific basis to manifesting things in your life through thoughts and beliefs, e.g. romantic relationships, finances, etc.? I'm inclined to dismiss this as woo, but I notice that my frame of mind does affect how people relate to me, which in turn can yield seemingly more positive or negative outcomes accordingly. Would love to hear your thoughts. Many thanks in advance. Well, this is one of those questions where you answered the question in your question. <laughs> so spoiler alert, my friends listening, um, the, the question's already been answered by the question itself. Is there any science to manifesting things with our minds and that there's a quantum reality that we fluctuate or energies we draw from? Of course, there's no scientific evidence to support that. Of course, there isn't. Um, but so Research has shown that uh, goal setting or even the belief that you can manifest things with your mind and then focusing on that does, in fact, make those things more likely to occur. So let's kind of unpack. Let's say if we're trying to manifest a romantic relationship. So we might say the universe wants me to have a partner that I love. And I believe that the universe is going to give me a partner that I love. Or we might be praying to God, God, would you bring me someone I love? And God, I believe you're going to bring me someone I love. As you focus on that over and over, that message gets encoded into your brain. Specifically, uh, Andrew Newberg found in his research, it appears to affect the activity of the thalamus uh, pretty significantly, sort of encoding that, that, that desire at a very deep level in our brain. It begins to influence our actions, begins to influence our expression. So if you believe 
that you're worthy of love and you believe the universe or God is going to give you someone to love, you might behave with a level of confidence that begins to alter your body posture, your facial expressions, your vocal tone, and that will begin to influence the actions of people around you. I have a deeply held belief that most people are kind. And so when I interact with people, I often operate under the assumption that people are kind, and I tend to be shocked at the stories I hear uh, from people of the unkindness of others. Because I believe people are kind, I tend to be preemptively kind to people and find that that is often received. It doesn't mean that I'm sending an energy out to the universe. It means I'm a social mammal, and that belief that people are kind alters my behaviors. If you try to manifest a promotion, well, gosh, there's a good chance that you might work harder at the office and that you might be more collaborative in teams and that you might behave as a better leader, and then what do you know? You get promoted. So um, it's a pretty simple idea in play that is, in fact, very validated by science that focusing on beliefs and goal setting changes our behaviors and conditions our unconscious mind to be an ally instead of an adversary in pursuing those things in life that we want. I'm so thankful to BetterHelp for sponsoring Ask Science Mike, and I'm also so thankful to BetterHelp for connecting me with a counselor that I love. You know, I've been working through a lot of emotional challenges these last few years in my life, and BetterHelp has played a major role in my growth and my recovery. You know, I've been experiencing and learning about the codependent tendencies I have, and meeting with my BetterHelp counselor online in the comfort of my own home has been instrumental in me not only feeling better, but getting concrete strategies to make my life improve each day and each week. Here's how the process works. If you go to betterhelp.com slash science mike, you'll not only get 10% off of your order, but you'll go through a questionnaire that will help BetterHelp connect you with one of their 6,000 licensed therapists that can get you the support that you deserve. Over 800,000 people have done it, and because their service is secure and online and completely private, you can change therapists at any time for any reason. It's affordable, it's private, it's anytime, it's anywhere. So why not get started today by visiting betterhelp.com slash science mike. Hi, Science Mike. Uh, my 13-year-old daughter is getting really into witchcraft. She's watching lots of YouTube videos about witchcraft and reading about them and you know, growing up as an evangelical Christian, even though I've deconstructed quite a bit, I do still consider myself a Christ follower. Um, so with, with that background, her interest in witchcraft makes me a little uneasy. Um, but I, I read some stuff about witchcraft as a teenager, and you know, I'm figuring it's just a phase. But all this made me think it might be uh, uh, an interesting uh, topic for you to delve into. So I'm wondering what uh, what you know science says about witchcraft. Is there any science to support the idea of spells and such? And uh, and you know, do you, 
have any advice on how to handle a teenager who's really interested in this. My current stance has been a pretty hands-off approach, just letting her be curious. Uh, but, you know, if she actually comes to the point where she's wanting to start, you know, practicing witchcraft in my home, I'm not really comfortable with that idea. So wanted to get your thoughts on uh, on witchcraft and uh, how to deal with a teenager who's interested in it. So thanks so much. Bye. Well, let's start with the disappointing thing, I suppose. I was not able to find very many uh, peer-reviewed papers on the efficacy of witchcraft or magic. That's M-A-G-I-C-K. Um, but let's be honest, there's not that many studies on like prayer or uh, more mainstream Western religions, so it doesn't surprise me that researchers have yet to plumb the depths of witchcraft. Let me start with uh, a point of solidarity. I identify as a Christian. I, I'm a strange Christian in that I don't have any particular belief in supernatural things, and that I mainly approach my faith as a, a meaning-making tool. Um, and I, I don't, I don't make a lot of claims about God. I'm a mystic. I just experience God, and that my primary kind of epistemology or worldview is science-based. Um, but I am a Christian, and in more than just a tradition or ritual. Christian theology is important to me, and if I separate it from fact claims about reality and, and experience it in mystical contemplation, I find it to be incredibly helpful and incredibly useful. And some of my closest friends are actual self-identifying witches. They are lovely, kind people who, for them, uh, witchcraft is their meaning-making mechanism, their way of exploring the world and the human experience. And... I'm not only fine with it, I love it, I'm delighted, I'm curious. So the first thing I would say with your daughter is perhaps more than being hands-off, perhaps she could be curious. Because what I know about the practice of faith and worldviews, by the way, this would include atheists, what I know about worldviews and faith is that they are survival mechanisms. They are emotional mechanisms our brains use to survive and to navigate the world and to find identity and belonging. That's true if you're a Christian, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a witch, um, an atheist, whatever, uh, a Republican, a Democrat, a, a libertarian, independent, all these terms we use to identify ourselves, these are meaning-making tools our brains use to survive. All worldviews represent some kind of approximate map our brain is making of reality. And our brains are good at making maps of reality that help us survive and find social belonging. And our brains are terrible at uh, reliably uncovering consistent facts about the physical world that don't have to do with our immediate survival needs. That's why we have the scientific method and other rigorous tools for examining knowledge. So it is possible and likely that witchcraft plays an important role for your daughter psychologically. It is interesting to me that in the United States, most witches are former Christians. And what we understand about faith transitions, of which something like 46% of Americans will go through a faith transition at some point in their life, is that these faith transitions usually have to do with some psychological shortcoming of the prior faith tradition. Evangelicalism, when Billy Graham started going around the country doing his crusades, he wasn't 
converting and baptizing some great unreligious American uh, mass. There wasn't one. Billy Graham offered a personal conception of God to a bunch of mainline children who only knew a, a, a distant, impersonal, theologically liberal God. And so the idea that Jesus loves you personally and Jesus cares for you personally was really compelling and caused evangelicalism to absolutely take off at the same time the dominance the mainline church had over American culture began to decline. It was a psychological shortcoming. Of course, then we saw what? The fundamentalist movement inside of American evangelicalism caused great, great psychological harm to so many people. If you're a a woman in the evangelical church, gosh, that can be a difficult lot in life if you uh, find yourself uh, with ambition. What if you want to preach? What if you want to teach? What if you don't actually want to have a husband over you your entire life? For people of different uh, sexual orientations and gender identities, what does it feel like to be told that the way you define yourself and the way you express love is inherently sinful? Or what about the ways in which American evangelicalism uh, tends to encourage participation by people of all races and ethnicities so long as they behave in a way that's acceptable to politically conservative white people? This, This factor, this shortcoming now, evangelicalism offered some amazing innovations over prior traditions, and now, over time, its dominance reveals its shortcomings, which is why we see this massive exodus in the United States right now out of evangelical religion. By the way, if you're listening and you're evangelical, I know y'all are out there, and I hope you can hear me talking about the psychological underpinnings of your faith system and the sociological consequences of that and understanding that not all evangelicals believe the same things. The fact that you're listening to the show makes me know that you really care about people and that you honor diversity of opinion. So don't I would just ask, don't take this as some personal attack. I'm talking about the system of evangelical religion because it tends to drive younger people away from it. Statistically, that's just a fact. For whatever reason, and my atheist friends will get offended now, atheism and secularism are not satisfying to people. I think they do a good job of encouraging rigorous critical thinking. Uh, and then they don't do a good job of creating social cohesion, even secular humanism. And so people look for other meaning-making tools with which to navigate the world. I'm spiritual, not religious is one of those. I manifest things through crystals is one of those. Uh, And I'm a witch is one of those. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, at some level, I believe that when I pray, some entity that created all reality listens to me. (laughs) Is that really weirder than following the rule of three to manifest something? I don't know. I don't think it is. I think both are ways that people are trying to navigate the world and and survive. So my recommendation for you would be really curious uh, to be in conversation with your daughter about witchcraft and what she likes about it, and what it means to her, and be really open-minded, because here's the thing, and no no offense to my friends who are witches, and some of them are listening, I don't think there's some supernatural power behind spells. 
uh, any more than I think uh, I could pray and save or end someone's life. I think what we're talking about is meaning-making mechanisms that influence our psychology and our physiology through the material means of the world. And I can hear my science people cheering and so excited. The atheists who are listening just spiked the ball in the end zone hearing me say that. Remember, I am also a mystic, and I hold things loosely. I pray every day, and I read my Bible, and uh, I understand that part of my brain deeply, deeply believes that God listens as I pray. If you'd like to understand more about my contradictory and strange worldview and how I've used it to find peace and satisfaction, and I guess thousands of other people as well, you can check out my first book, which is called Finding God in the Waves, um, which after all this time, it came out in 2016. You know, it still sells several hundred copies a month, which is pretty wild to me. Um, but I wouldn't panic. Witchcraft fundamentally is a meaning-making tool that is addressing one of your daughter's psychological needs. And like any faith tradition, it can be used in ways that are helpful and ways that are harmful. So I judge faiths not by their theological claims, but by their life impact. If witchcraft is building community, causing kindness and altruism towards others, encouraging empathy and compassion, then I celebrate the witchcraft. If witchcraft is causing um, isolation, fear, anger, self-hatred, loathing of other people, now we have a developing faith system that is problematic and concerning. And that is true of any faith system, including witchcraft. So, Get curious, get involved, and just know this, it's going to be okay. Our last question came in via email, and it reads, Dear Science Mike, Can correlations and or comparisons be made between transcendent experience and psychosis? Are all angel viewers and or God hearers, especially those mentioned in religious texts, psychotic? As a child, I always thought my intensely euphoric creative experiences were mystical experiences from God. However, the older I grew, the more intense the euphoric phases became and depressive states started to valley in between. At 23 years old, I saw a blinding figure of light that somehow transcendently gave me the courage and peace to seek mental care. I was committed twice to a mental institution where many freedoms were embarrassingly stripped away. When I made the mistake of telling another patient about the figure of light I saw back home, the nurses injected me with more antipsychotics and doctors labeled me severe bipolar 1 with psychotic features. I'm now healthy, back to work, and staying on medication. I realize now that what I saw was a hallucination yet can't help but wonder how much worse my experience would have been without that courage-giving figure of light. I've read that many other cultures embrace their hallucinations positively, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for all you do. I feel such tenderness and I feel such grief as I read your message. Because I see, oh gosh, such tremendous 
pain and difficulty in your life. And although I'm so happy to hear that you have found a period of stability and that you found strategies that work for you, I'm so sorry that the road there has been fraught with such difficulty. Our approaches to mental health and mental health care so often shockingly false, short all over the world. And as I, I look at your story here, I see the ways that we fail to treat people with kindness and respect and dignity, even when the intention is to offer help and rehabilitation. Like you, I have seen lights. Like you, I have heard God. Unlike you, I have not been diagnosed bipolar, but I have researched extensively what causes people to have mystical experiences and the intersection of mental health and spiritual experiences. And it is true that often people who we would categorize with various mental disorders, uh, though they experience wondrous things that at their root uh, are based in a disorder. That is true. It is also true that the cultural context can address the degree of suffering that person goes through. So uh, people in Central and South American cultures who have schizophrenia tend to hear encouraging voices, whereas people in the West tend to hear accusing voices. That difference, we believe, is culturalized. Likewise, some people, I'm sure, who were authors of scripture or religious leaders, had some kind of affliction uh, which caused them to hallucinate. But let me be clear, everything anyone ever sees is a hallucination. We should not be so haughty or proud, any of us, to believe that our senses offer us an objective view of the world. That's not what happens. Our brains generate the world for our survival. They, they build an approximation that allows us to find food and safety and shelter and sex. That's what our brain's senses do for us. So when you look, if, you, if you're listening to me on a device right now, you look at that device, you don't see that device. You see a map your brain is making of the device, the actual physical representation, that the physics that that, that that image represent are so incomprehensibly complex. The quantum mechanics required for you to see your phone are staggering and unimaginable. So your brain takes a shortcut and simplifies things. It's a hallucination. So we describe as disorder things where that, that hallucination creates too big a variance from what other people experience. So, somewhere, part of you believed you needed help. And so that figure of light made you feel calm and said, get help. And then a terrible thing happened. You were mistreated in response to that insight. Now, back to me for a second. I have seen a bright light approach me in the air. I've seen that light cover my entire field of vision. I have felt the, the love that God has for me and the love that God has for all others. And I have heard the voice of God in my ear. And I sought out 
significant neurological and psychological assistance after those episodes. And I, unlike you, had a different experience. I was told that I was fine and okay and normal. I later learned that people who have trauma backgrounds, I have PTSD, are more likely to experience mystical experiences because of our dissociative tendencies. Anyone, any human being can probably have a mystical experience. The question is our individual propensity. So different mental health disorders and disabilities, dissociative tendencies and trauma all increase our propensity to experience a very real feeling manifestation of divine energy. And people without those things or without some kind of genetic predisposition uh, don't experience those things as readily or as easily. I've often wondered if I've often wondered if I can see God because I've needed to be able to see God to survive my life. In my own ways, I have deep traumas and difficulties. I had few friends growing up. I'm autistic. Life is often a struggle for me. And I've wondered if either through quirk of evolution or some divine hand, I feel closer to God simply because I need to feel closer to God to survive. And as a mystic, I've given up unpacking that, that suitcase of trying to solve that jigsaw puzzle and instead simply be grateful for the connection I feel with the divine and allow it to compel me to love others well and to try to be a positive force in this society that we are all creating together. And what I hear in your question is you're working on the same jigsaw puzzle that I tried to solve for years. And you can continue to do so. There's nothing wrong with that. Mysticism is not the only valid response to these questions. But I also want you to know that I hear in your question that you too have been shaped by these experiences in a way that makes you want to live well and love others well and be a meaningful part of creating a society that allows others to do the same. So I'm so happy to have read your question, to have sat with you in this for a moment. And I hope in the days that come you continue to have good support and good management of bipolar, but that you also find that light is there whenever you need it. Ask Science Mike would be impossible without help. I want to thank all of my patrons on Patreon for helping make this show, not only funding it, but picking the questions that we review together every week. If you'd like to join my Patreon community, you can do that on my website, asksciencemike.com. You just click the Patreon button. People help me by uh, reviewing this podcast and sharing it with others. So you can go to Apple Podcasts uh, and 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 rate and review the show. You can use Apple Podcasts or Spotify or other players to share the program. That's so helpful. Thank you. And of course, there's people who devote significant time every week to making this program possible. I want to thank Caitlin Hermstad for being the show's producer. I'd like to thank Greg Nordine for being a producer and sound designer on Ask Science Mike. 
Andrew Galecki provides pre-production work. My dear friend Jeb Botterford wrote and recorded that delightful theme song we listen to every week. Brent Cradle provides management services. Tanner Hearn provides logistical fulfillment through his company, Inverse. And Victory Palmazano acts as my producer and creative director, not just here on Ask Science Mike, but in everything that I do. Thank you all for listening. And I can't wait to speak with you again next week. Thank you.